Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Thanks for tuning in. If you need more information, just go to jentaylor.net, where I have everything at your disposal from what it's like to live as a mom to 13 kids to my podcast, public speaking, coaching, or purchasing my book. All in one place, jentaylor.net, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Today, I'm super happy, pleased, impressed to have Paul Gowan on the show. Paul, how are you? I'm really well, Jen. Thank you so much for having me join you today. I'm ecstatic. So what I asked you before was pronouncing your last name, which is Gowan, but it's, it's actually spelled Go Win. Yes. Which is the name of your company. Yes. Tell me just a little bit right now about your company and what it does and what you do within that. I want to start there and then we're going to jump back. Absolutely. So my company name is Go Win Today, and it is a play on the spelling of my last name. What I do is I, I call myself a strategic action coach. I served in the United States Marine Corps for 15 years, and as a veteran coming back in and interacting with the civilian society, I heard a misuse, therefore a misapplication of the terms strategy tactics. It's like buzzwords, but I'm like, no, 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 those words have meaning. Uh, so as a strategic action coach, I get alignment. I share those definitions. One of the pieces I offer my clients is as a certified high performance coach. That's through the High Performance Institute founded by Brennan Burchard. And with that coaching certification, coupled with 15 years of military leadership experience uh, of bringing together teams, training them, and helping them perform in some of the world's most austere environments, like a combat zone in Afghanistan. Like, how can you bring the joy? How can you have high-performing teams there? Well, I did. I also made some really terrible mistakes. Right. And I've learned from that. And I, I am excited to share with my clients, like, I'm on a journey of development, too. So... I, we explore all of those things. You're guaranteed to have a great time, laugh a little bit, cry a little bit, and really move that needle of your life forward. I love it. And you talk about how everyone has an it, a dream, whether it's a relationship, a vacation, a job, financial abundance, and you, that's what you do. You help them achieve their it. Absolutely. It's really fascinating to me how many people don't dream. Whatever the reason is, I honor that space that you're in. When you start to dream again, you start to move in a direction. When you start gaining like that movement, you're going to develop momentum. It's going to help you like go through those times of like surging seas that's attempting to push you back. No, no, you've got momentum. You've got that confidence. You can engage. You can figure it out. In contrast, there were times in my life that I was that ship like dead in the water. That's a real dangerous place, especially when storms in your life start brewing. Because when you're dead in the water and not having any movement in your life, that storm can build up a wave, hit you broadside, and just flip you around. So what I work with people on is dream large. We did it as kids. 
let's let's bring back that like childhood fascination with dreaming not because it's possible not because it's realistic but it exercises our brain from there we look at how to make it a goal or that strategy and then we talk about how to take those steps to work within yourself work within your relationships take a look at what your success markers are how do you leverage your plan all the way through so you can go out and win those dreams that is amazing and we met at a public speaking convention and we did. <laughs> that, which was so fun. That was it was so much fun. It was incredible. <laughs> and um, I, you know, you meet people there and you don't know that much about them except that you connect with, there were maybe 60 or 70 people there. And I think yeah. as far as connecting for me, there were probably about 15 people I really connected with and you were one of them. And I appreciate that energy that you bring. Uh, you also shared a bunch, but we're going to get into that. So I'm going to jump back in time. You were raised in Billings, Montana, born in 80. Mm -hmm. And uh, tell me about growing up and what that was like. Because you said you already said you served 15 years in the Marine Corps, so I want you to take right. on your journey up to when you joined the Marines. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, absolutely. Montana is an amazingly beautiful state that has people – vastly spread across a, 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 a geographic area that has a climate that is very harsh. People think about the Montana winters. I remember as a kid, you know, 20, 30 below without wind chill, harsh winters. And then in the summers, I remember as a kid, uh, 100 degree, 100 plus degree summers. So this significantly like wide spectrum of climate. And that climate and that dispersion of the population creates a, a breed of people that are very tough. And uh, my parents were some of those tough people. Like my mom was a fourth generation Montanan. My dad, we joke, he was an import from California. And uh, they met and started a family in this very harsh climate with the population spread out across where you really are in, in, in a survival mode at times. And there were some pieces growing up in Montana that, that were especially tough for me. Uh, at a very, very young age, I was uh, sexually molested by the neighbor boy. And later in life, finding out that he had a stepfather that more than likely passed that behavior to him. And unfortunately, in some rural communities, that childhood trauma is of significant presence and not a significant conversation, especially in the early eighties. Absolutely. Absolutely true. And how, now you're the oldest of three children. I am. I am. And how old were you when this abuse happened? I, I think it was right around about three years old. Yeah. I remember more of the event than I do remember of like how many birthday candles did I have on my cake at that time? Right. Well, and kids kind of mash things together time yeah. chronologically. But you were yeah. young, and how old was he? I approximately. I mean, he was much larger and older than me, so I think probably around six or seven. Okay. So somewhere around that, and I've and I've spoke with my folks to to reconstruct some of the context around that event because I was so young, yeah. and uh, and it it's all best estimate at this point. Um, and it's not something I dwell on and I've accepted that every day parts of that event visit me 
And now instead of like running and hiding from it and attempting to put up a wall, it's more like, yep, that happened. And it sucked. Because of that event, I feel a greater degree of empathy with people. And I've noticed growing up with that trauma, sexual abuse of boys and men is not a comfortable conversation for our country. And well, I had the strength of being a United States Marine. So I'm going to utilize that strength and have this conversation, advance this conversation. It, it, it is out there. It happens. And we don't have a lot of statistics and resources and studies about how large of a problem is this for the males in our society. Do you think that's predominantly because men don't tend to discuss it just at all? Boy, that is such a complex question. The approach that was given to my folks as, as they found out what had happened to me, because I was very confused and I all of a sudden had a fascination with my genitalia at three years old. And so they spoke to like some of the mental health professionals and law enforcement at the time. And the hope was he's young enough that he won't remember. Oh, okay. So I think that there's an undercurrent of that's the initial problem that we have abuse happening to our children, like little boys and girls. And there's still an element of, well, hopefully they're young enough that they won't remember. Uh, And so where is it going from there? Do men have this stigma to not talk about sexual trauma? Absolutely. Absolutely. And for years, I questioned my own sexuality and my own body as like, how is this defining me? Until recently, I recognized I'm no longer going to allow it to define me because that's my choice. And I recognized I was looking through the world. I was looking at the world through a traumatized three-year-old's lens. And what's great is I've developed these tools within the last like 21 months, especially on my personal development journey, where I have the tools to not only cast and grind and polish, but to wear and see the world through a 37-year-old's perspective that had trauma happen. Instead of being stuck on that three-year-old's lens that saw the world as a dangerous, vicious, fearful place that can't be trusted, that permeated all of my actions, all of my relationships, all of my interactions uh, in the Marine Corps with people in authority. Like, how am I going to trust you? You're part of this machine that I can't trust. And my actions followed suit. So in, in advancing the conversation for me and doing the work for myself and recognizing that happened, I'm choosing to look through a different lens. And not because it was easy. It started as almost like a survival. Like I'm tired of running and I'm either going to run into prison or I'm going to run into the grave. So let's stop running and let's move in a different direction. And, and that's what I've been really excited to be doing in, in the last several months, really. It takes a lot in a sexual abuse situation to realize that it's something that happened to you and it isn't, doesn't define who you are. It isn't, and that it's okay to still be a sexual person. Mm-hmm. And you're not a sexual person because of what happened to you. You're a sexual person in spite of what happened to you. Uh, Yes, and if I could, one little nuance of words, because that's what I do. 
Um, as a strategic action coach, I tell clients and prospective clients, I do a few things really, really well. I'm going to listen to your use of words in a way that you may have never experienced before. I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to give you bold feedback. And I want to give you that bold feedback right now. I'm not doing this in spite of any damn thing because I've been there, done that. And that furthered like my running. That's like a sprint at the finish line for a few decades. It did not serve me. So I'm not doing it in spite of anything that happened to me. I'm doing it with, without spite. So despite the absence of spite or fear or resentment, I'm doing this because I want to trust and love the people of the world. And to do that, <laughs> that was not easy. I'd seen what people can do to each other. I've been in rooms where we are cheering that we have just not only killed a person, but we dropped a rocket on them. That was still somebody's husband, son, more than likely father, you know, like, and we're cheering that we have just obliterated this person to where his family members that are going to grieve over his death might not be able to give him a proper burial. I've seen like what we can do at that extreme. And I don't, I don't exist in that space anymore. Let's, well, first of all, I appreciate you rewording. I love that. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I love it. And so tell me more about growing up. Uh, you mm -hmm. have two younger siblings. What was the age spread? And talk more, you touched on your parents. And it sounds to me, I would, um, I would assume, which you don't like to do, that they did a pretty decent job with the tools they had presented to them as far as that sexual abuse went. Not that it was the right thing to do or the best thing right. to do, but in the time frame with the resources they had, they managed right. that fairly well. I, I agree. The, the conversation around sexual trauma across the board has drastically changed in the last 40 years. And uh, it was only within the last two years that I rolled up my sleeves and we had that difficult conversation, which we can talk about the use of that word in a minute. Uh, we had the conversation. And that, that was counter to what the leading experts at the time, whether they be mental health professionals, child mental health professionals, law enforcement, there was an agreed body of knowledge in, 19, in the early 1980s. And my parents followed the guidance of those experts. Since then, uh, my parents were surprised that I did remember in such acute detail. And we talked through that piece and we talked through how do I want to be supported with that as a part of my story now? Um, my parents were extraordinary. There were some pieces that they mimicked in behavior from their own parents. And child abuse was one of those pieces. So talk and, to me about that. Go into mm -hmm. that a little bit, Paul. Into your siblings and the abuse that you suffered at the hands of your parents. Yeah. So my brother is really close in age to me, about 18 months apart. My sister is six years younger than me. And my dad, um, he has his struggles with alcohol. And he's been sober now for over 30 years. Wow. Right? Like, if you are at home, hey. throw it out for Papa Gallon because he is crushing it. Because he didn't have 
those best examples when he was a kid. His dad was doing the best he could coming off of World War II, being a ranger in the United States Army, liberating Holocaust camps. His dad had stuff he was still trying to work out. And so that was passed on to my dad. My dad was doing the best that he could. It wasn't until I had my own children that I really started seeing that. And so we had those conversations. Dad, I didn't appreciate getting beat. I didn't appreciate getting hurt. You know, as a kid, I shared with my parents that I remember around five or six having this like dream of the day that I was going to be big enough and bad enough and strong enough and vicious enough that when they are reliant on me and they misbehave, they don't put away their whatever, whap, boom, tables turn. So grateful. So grateful with the resources that we have, with the technology that we have, with the discussions that our society is willing to have. I bellied up to that bar. And instead of like having that drink of intoxicating whiskey, that was my drink of choice, a good bourbon whiskey. I now have bellied up to the bar of personal development, how to advance our society through communication. Even in those conversations that it's not comfortable. It's not easy. Uh, having those conversations have really helped me out. My dad with his alcoholism wasn't able to, really fully leverage some of the, the jobs that he had in, in sales with uh, an emergent um, cellular network. And uh, as a car salesman, he was phenomenal. He would celebrate, he'd be like, and I don't know the full ebb and flow because I was really young, uh, that didn't work. So he and mom opened up a cleaning company. And that's what I remember doing as early as about six or seven was my dad, doing his best to teach me the lessons of life. We cleaned this uh, Congregationalist church out on the western side of, uh, west end of Billings. And my job was to clean the baseboards. Now this church had baseboards through the entire like sanctuary area, the reception area, the, the little like dining hall, the offices, the classrooms, the nursery. They had a lot of baseboards. And he decided to use that as a tool to motivate me and hone my focus on advancing my life. And so my job was to take the spray bottle, spray, spray, wipe, wipe, college. The one word that I was required to say out loud was college. My dad knew advancing my mind, well, I choose to believe that he knew advancing my mind at some level would help me break our family out of this cycle with more education, with each generation. We can change the cycle of the, of the behavior that our, that our parents have taught us. And so that was my job. Spray, spray, wipe, wipe, college. <laughs> and go wipe every single baseboard. There's a lot of time to think about college when you're six years old, right? So my dad did some of those things marvelously. My mom stepped up and she was the scoutmaster of my Boy Scout troop growing up. She was the first woman in the state of Montana to be able to be a registered scoutmaster with her full first name utilized. And she explained the history to me that in times of war in the past, there have been women scoutmasters. They were only allowed to register with their first initial. And she was the first one in the history of that beautiful state to be able to register as Diane Gowan. 
And she didn't know a lot of stuff about being a Boy Scout, yet she did because she was a farm girl raised from the north, like central Montana area, extremely harsh land, extremely harsh winters. Growing up, like driving a tractor at four years old, growing up with that heavy hand. Like she, she had this innovation and she had this tie to the past and she led our Boy Scout troop over several journeys across the Beartooth Mountains backpacking. Not because she knew how, she was willing to lead because the fathers of us boys were busy in these jobs that didn't allow them the time off in the weekends or the, the week-long break to go across and backpack the Rocky Mountains. So she stepped up and she did that. There were also some like rougher times. She has depression. She has, that's I've come to see is such a struggle. And if people aren't aware that depression is not a mood, it can be, that it's a mental illness, that it, there's a, a default of your mind. Uh, she was working with that as she was doing the best thing to lead a bunch of adolescent boys. Like, that's courage. Uh, and she continued to do that after my brother and I were already long gone out of high school on to college. Like she continued that service to our community. So my parents, like they, I mean, they also busted their chops to put all three of us through private schools because they believed the education was going to be so much better in that private setting than what was available through public education. Now I don't have a basis for comparison because I didn't participate in the public education system. However, I know that my level of education has really, really been a game changer as I've interacted with college, like not one time, but two, uh, and been in the Marine Corps and been in some really critical thinking situations. And their investment for, for us to receive that private education, not when they could afford it. They went without vacation. They went without their dream home. They went without many, many things so that we could benefit from that education. So my parents, like, they are, can I say badass on your podcast? I'm going to say badass. You can swear. swear. I'm going to say they're damn badasses, Mm -hmm. you know, because they completely have changed how they were raised. They raised us kids with the ability to think, to question the world around us and look for the better way. And that's not normal. That was normal for me. And that was a struggle in the Marine Corps. Like, why aren't you thinking outside of the box? Oh, because you're not allowed to. You need to ask permission. No, you're not thinking out of the box if you think you got to ask for permission. Like, you're missing the fundamental concept here. They did that. And, and despite how they were raised, they were looking for ways to advance us to be even better, to have even more opportunities and really advance our lives better than what they had. And not in spite of their childhood, not from that place of fear or anger they did it despite, out of complete love for us. And you're very gracious, though, because you see all of the things that they fought for that were in the best interest and the good. Even right. though growing up, you struggled with an alcoholic dad who was abusive. Right. right. And I applaud that, that you can separate those two things and see all of the value while still having to have experienced the alcoholic abuse. Right. And there was a transition point where my dad became sober and something shifted in his life. He stopped hitting me. 
and my mom took over. And it was really, really confusing. This was uh, in my early teens, about 12 years old. And it was this really weird dynamic that like what was once safe is now not. And what was once not is now safe. And it was a really strange dynamic. And only recently have my brother and my sister and I been able to sit down as adult siblings and be like, hey, let's piece this together. Like, did you talk to mom and dad about this event? Did you, okay, what did they say? What do you remember from this event? Like, how has this impacted your life? Like, let's talk about it. Not even to a place of resolution. I think right now it's more of like a build a context. I was a teenager in the middle of the situation. I only remember right here. What do you remember? Because you weren't in my eyes. And in a way, we're like our own, I don't know, like a mastermind. <laughs> like the Gowan Kids mastermind. Uh, because the three of us are powerhouses, each in our own regard. And when you put the three of us together and we have alignment and we're going to set out to tackle something, look out world. And we're gaining some traction on that uh, with some projects that are coming up in the future. Yay. I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah. So you did go to college. You graduated high school. You went to college. So take me a little bit through that and then enlisting. Right. So I went to college for two years. Growing up in our home with an alcoholic father, we didn't talk about alcohol. That was the support for dad. You don't talk about alcohol. I was so fearful to explore like uh, drugs and alcohol and sex and women and all of that, uh, that when I went across the state and, oh, I am good looking. You know, I'm not with the same kids for the last 12 years of private school. Like, I am good looking. I do have a fresh start. Well, hello, ladies. You know, and I was just like, I love college. But it wasn't for any of the collegiate things. It was for all of those extracurricular activities. And I excelled in the study of alcohol. I, I did okay in the study of women. And here I am two years later, and my grades aren't that great. I'm going to school, not because I really wanted to. I had a scholarship that I lost because of academic, uh, lack of academic performance. And I was really struggling. Well, what do I do now? You know, I don't, I'm not happy here. I was also in a phase of running. And running across the state wasn't quite far enough because the trauma that I carried with me in my own mind, what I wasn't to find out, but for years later, it's not possible to run from that. I didn't get that at that time. I go to the Marine Corps. I want to serve my country. Both my grandfathers were in the Second World War, something I really, really respected. Uh, one of my mom's sister was in the, the Navy and rose to a very high rank of service to the Navy. And uh, my, my dad's sister retired from the Air Force. So I had this like urge, like I want to explore that. I want to see what that's about. And oh, by the way, I get to go around the world? Okay. So I enlisted in the Marine Corps and I joined the band and I performed high enough on my audition. I got to choose where I was to be stationed first. That doesn't happen. This was just like this unique opportunity that I get to choose wherever there was a Marine band, I could go there. And I chose to go to Okinawa, Japan. Wait, what uh, did you play in the band? We didn't even talk about this. Just oh, I, I played the saxophone. <laughs> Excellent. Do you still play right. Uh, no, uh, after that much 
level of plane, my joint wore out. And so it would pop loose. Uh, some dentists told me it would partially dislocate. And so it just became very, very painful. And I had to quit being in the band after that first enlistment. Uh, went to Okinawa, met a local gal. We got married, um, quickly was working through the ranks and then had that like curveball. You can no longer play your saxophone. Like it became difficult to chew gum, to chew a hamburger um, because of that pain that was in that joint. So I changed my jobs to, uh, from the band to military police, re-enlisted for four more years. I had a son now. I'm like, well, don't know what to do. <laughs> Let's do this for one more tour and figure this out. You know, and the war had kicked off and there was like a $10,000 re-enlistment bonus. Like sign here and we're going to give you $10,000 extra dollars. They didn't, it wasn't 10. They, they, they took some taxes out of it. That was a huge amount of money at 24 years old. Um, hell, that'd be a lot of money right now, right? And so uh, I, I, I did take advantage of that opportunity uh, and had the great fortune of becoming one of the general officers, security and driver for a year. That was one of those moments I look back and it was just like, yep, that changed me forever. A general officer is akin to a CEO. And my general had done a series of firsts in his career. As such, he was an out of the box thinker who absolutely performed at this strategic level and passed looking like what are the strategies that he's implementing within thousands of personnel that he's responsible for. And how can he, with that momentum that's carried for that organization, what does that look like in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And driving him, sometimes it was him and I, and we would have these conversations. And I would ask him these questions like, how do you approach this problem solving? And then he started asking me questions. And all of a sudden, he's like, Sergeant Gallon, have you ever thought about becoming an officer? And I'm like, oh, you know, sir, yeah, I've thought about it. Well, thank God that he had that perseverance and saw something in me that I didn't quite see. And with his bold support, I applied for and was selected to be an officer. Now, the news broke at drill instructor school. Drill instructors aren't really keen on officers. And I got pulled in and said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a drill instructor or an officer? And I'm like, ah, can I do both? No. I'm like, well, it's been fun. I was yelling at trees to toughen my voice to be able to have that awesome responsibility to create Marines. I left that opportunity and I had my second attempt at college, went to the University of Arizona, graduated with a degree of public administration, which really advanced my thinking for how do we frame things, especially in the public sector, which by the way, the military is. Okay, well, let's go ahead and implement some of these things that I've seen as successes from other public entities. Because at that time, uh, the public administration program was in the business college uh, at the University of Arizona, Eller Business College. I was able to interact with these people and these professors who were excelling in the private industry as well. So I had this like amalgamation of ideas and hopes and innovation and like this entrepreneurial spirit in the public sector that was met with some resistance. Uh, had some awesome opportunities to serve as an officer to include Afghanistan, really started running into some problems there. Uh, really started running it. Do you want to pause there? No, I want to, I want to, I love everything. It's awesome. Yeah. I love the, okay. it's very, yeah. but yes, now you return to the forces 
after having public administration, you are an officer now. Right, right. You were assigned in North Carolina, but then Correct. you went to Afghanistan. So let's now you've had all of these the uh, sexual abuse, the physical abuse, the alcohol. How is the alcohol going at this point? Were you still really studying hard? <laughs> this is where, uh, wow. Um, this is where things were hard. You know, we had, I had two kids and we came to America, had a third child. The, the home front was rough. And for me, it was rough before we even left Okinawa. Uh, I was also involved uh, in being an active member of a motorcycle club. And that had a possibility for a family life. It's not one that I took. I was, I was not, um, I was being verbally and physically abused by my wife. I was doing everything I could to not be around her. She was doing everything she could to say, hey, what are you doing? I want your support. And I, it's, it's only in the last two years that I've come to realize that, that how that was being expressed, I was losing the message in how the message was being expressed. You know, here's this, this woman, um, two children from Okinawa, now in Tucson, Arizona. And I, I recognize there were opportunities that through communication, uh, understanding how I had opportunities to more boldly support her and I didn't. Again, doing the best I could. That escalated to where um, I, she and I agreed that she was going to take the kids back to Okinawa and we were going to have a break. Well, that break for me meant infidelity full-blown. There, there were infidelity times in our marriage, but there uh, I quickly became really, really drunk. Uh, missing my kids so much, and I became visibly unfaithful. Uh, I had a girlfriend, and I wasn't ashamed to see it because I was just, I was really what I call just in my own way. I was stuck in my head and completely blocking the advance of my life because I wasn't making decisions. I was, I was a coward um, and not having the conversations because I believed them to be too tough with this woman that I said I do. What's nice is I recently got back from a trip and I, and I had put a lot of this blame and I had really placed me as like the, the reason the marriage failed. And I was able to see things from a different light in conversations with her. I was reminded like, oh yeah, this really didn't work well for us. I went this way. And I just remembered that, that action there. I don't remember like the, what was behind that. So it was really healing to explore like what happened. So I'm stationed in North Carolina. Uh, I'm being very visibly unfaithful. I'm missing my kids desperately. And I'm working with a team of Marines to change the way we track where people are based out of North Carolina on six continents around the world. I was really bummed that we never had a mission in Antarctica for the Marine Corps uh, because my Marines were an amazing, amazing team of believers and hard workers. And uh, I really started encouraging them. I said, I want you to find a mission in Antarctica. I want our little office here to have placed people and accurately tracked them in seven, all seven continents. Never happened. I was really bummed. Uh, we, 
utilized technology in a way that transformed how accurate we were we reporting who was where. And that was not normal of an officer of my grade. I was a second lieutenant and for universality, that was the first officer rank. We call it 01. Uh, because of my prior enlisted experience, I was asked to be in this job. Well, this was an 04 that I took over for. Somebody that had significant more experience, influence, networking capability. It was an amazing opportunity for growth. As such, I was asked to join a team to go to Afghanistan because of my unconventional ways, because of thinking outside of the box. Um, it was a senior ranking position and an exception was made for me to come in as a junior rank. And the people I worked with there were, gosh, what would be more than technologically averse? Like scared? Like I don't want to be judgmental, but like outspokenly, I'm a stubby pencil kind of gal. That was what my, my boss told me. Like Excel intimidated her. She wanted to like get a ruler, draw lines of, on the piece of paper and get a calculator and do the math with a pencil. And I'm like, we're getting ready to talk about tens of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. I'm not staffed to do stubby pencil because that's what you're comfortable with. Now I'm giving you something that's probably a lot more polite than how I came across because at that time when I got stressed, I wasn't focused on persuasive techniques. I wasn't focused on communication. I was as smooth as four grit sandpaper. I was abrasive. I was crass. I was disrespectful. So I am not surprised that despite this gem that I found of how to maximize this process with technology, it fell flat on its face. Because at that time, I lacked the persuasion and communication skills to present and be like, ma'am, check this out. You brought me on the team and this works. Like, let's punch holes through it. Like, you let me know what you think is a problem and I'll demonstrate it. It's, it's solid. Um, as such, because I didn't have that communication skill and things were really, really strange in Afghanistan. Okay. Um, things really stopped making sense for me over there in terms of what I've come to call congruent messaging. One of the messages was that our people are our most important asset. Well, if that's my most important asset, then I'm going to be spending the majority of my time thinking about how can I most effectively use my people and how can I most quickly get my people out of harm's way? If that means like very, very focused, very violent, very swift military might, let's do it. Marine Corps is very good at that. Uh, and so are the, working with the rest of the branches of the military. We can focus that, be very swift, be very, very violent, and be very done. That wasn't happening in Afghanistan in 2013. I don't know if it's still happening now. And that's not to open up a political discussion of foreign policy. What I was looking at was the incongruity between, or incongruence. Am I making up words? I'm making up words. I this is awesome. <laughs> the, incon the incongruitization of saying <laughs> our service members are our most important asset. And I'm really hoping that General Mattis, I know he doesn't like to be called general anymore. Now he's the Secretary of Defense. So Secretary Mattis has that in mind. I believe he does. I saw the majority of leaders not focused on that. I was explicitly told by a major in my same work section, Lieutenant Gowan, you need to not rock the boat. 
get through this deployment, let it be on your fitness report, the military term, the Marine Corps term for a personnel evaluation, and then get back so you can get promoted and you can retire. What was really strange for me was in terms of time in service, this major and I were peers. Now in rank, she had a complete different experience set than I, because she had spent her entire time as an officer. Well, I had spent 11 years as an enlisted man, carrying out the decisions of officers. And I'd seen the implication of some of those actions that I wasn't sure if officers had quite thought through. And here was this, again, this, this critique of, you're not acting like a traditional lieutenant. Well, I'm not, I was a Mustang, uh, a military or Marine Corps term for, I was prior enlisted and now I'm an officer. I'm never going to act like a normal second lieutenant because I'm not. Don't rock the boat. Just do the minimum to get through this deployment. And here I am looking at this and I'm like, this isn't how we win the war. This isn't how we advance American foreign policy through military mind is through looking at what is the lowest end of mediocrity may I perform at. And that was the tone set by the senior officer in the section. She was completely out of height and weight regulations. I would say not knowing her body mass index, she was obese. And yet through the, the military bureaucracy, we brought her. And I was, this was a congruence piece for me. It's like, the military is a meritocracy. You get rewarded for performance. No, no. She had continued to be promoted. She had continued to lead people and she was completely not performing at one of those fundamental pieces of height and weight. Now I've come to recognize that's a fundamental piece of leading yourself. I wasn't leading myself either. I was skipping food. I was skipping working out. I was unable to sleep. I was over caffeinated, overstressed. I wasn't resolving my family situation. So in, in some ways, I was also completely out of shape. Like I was obese in my personal relationships because I wasn't working at those. So I've, I've really come in the last four years to identify with her in some ways. She wasn't married, she didn't have kids, but she was still neglecting herself. And that was the visible, exp ex uh, visible indicator where mine was not as visible um, and in the workplace. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't communicate well, I didn't persuade well, and I got fired. <laughs> it doesn't matter like how good you might be at your job. It, might, it, it doesn't matter if that's what you were initially assigned. Even in the public sector, you can get fired. And that was weird because here I am, like I've been a rock star this whole career, and now I'm like facing this like, you got fired. And I switched jobs, um, had a really great team that I worked with there, and one of the most successful things that I contributed to Helmand Province, Afghanistan in 2013 was when uh, an old Sergeant Major coordinated a cigar for me and him. And he didn't tell me he was inviting the new Colonel. Okay. I'm now an O2 first Lieutenant. This is an O6 and he is the old man. He's the boss. He's that commanding officer. And I was on his direct staff and he'd been in country for, I think two or three days. And the Sergeant Major didn't tell me he was going to invite the Colonel too. So the three of us are having a cigar. The colonel gets down to the end. We had our talk and discussion. And he looks at me and he, he says, if we were to change places today, what would you recommend? 
well, here I've been for like a year looking at, well, what would I recommend? What have I been recommending? What have I been advocating that I've missed because of a lack of persuasive communication, calm communication, not I'm going to be even more crass and aggressive because I feel like I'm not being heard. And I said, sir, with all due respect, I'd recommend that we send the unit home. Well, I think that caught the colonel slightly off guard because that's not a typical lieutenant answer. And he asked me, had I thought about this? Had I planned it and everything else? And I said, yes, uh, in depth. And I had the great fortune of contributing in a meeting shortly before I left for how can we rapidly downsize? One month to the day from him being in command, incorporating some of the pieces that I had recommended to him, he emailed the commanding general, let's send a lot of people home. And a couple days before I left Afghanistan, which I just celebrated four years of a safe return for me and some of my Marines, and then all of my Marines came home safely within the next four months. Uh, I, I was able to participate and really articulate that vision again and contribute to how can we send people home now? Uh, and that was, that's something that it won't make history books. It's not really sexy. It's not going to be a blockbuster movie. However, that was something that was really, really important to me was the responsible use of military might, which a lot of people focus on like surgical missile strikes. And when are we going to put in SEAL Team 6? And I was looking at a little bit larger level of how are we responsibly using our manpower? Are we engaging against our enemy? Are we creating more enemies? And how can we effectively and efficiently use our manpower resources to further that mission without creating more enemies and be done and send people home? Signal to our politicians, yep, we're good. You've, you've given us this, these instructions, we've accomplished them, and now we're gonna get out. So that was, that was probably the thing I'm, I'm most proud of, one of the things I'm most proud of in my entire career. Now, I know in Afghanistan, a lot of things were coming to a head for you, the marriage, the kids. Yeah. And because I know you, I have a, a little bit of insight on the fact that you suffered from PTSD. And I love mm -hmm. your explanation of the two types and how that works. And also that you have a dog with you everywhere you go. I do. She's and racked out on the couch right now. <laughs> I have fun pictures of her licking my face. Um, yeah. So yeah. talk to me about when and how the PTSD affected itself and uh, just right. and the whole blender association. Gosh. Yeah. So I am not a psychologist and I have, I have studied to a point for me to resolve pieces in my head. So any of your people that are listening to this podcast that if I miss the point because it's not completely perfect according to like psychology. Okay. I'm okay with that. I'd love to learn more. Like right now I'm at a place of this makes sense to me. So I see PTSD as being in two major categories, like a single point, like this traumatic event was really profound. And that has you um, going through that post-traumatic stress. The other piece is cumulative that there's been a series of events that you've been shouldering and now you have a straw that makes breaks the camel back the camel's back well i had um basically every 
type of abuse you can think of uh, as a child, as an adolescent, as a, as a husband. And now I'm in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, I, I thought of my, all my past trauma as like a little bit of a settling pond. And then Afghanistan served as that like industrial grade mixer, that 300 pounder that's on your, that's on your kitchen uh, counter. Right. And it just like reached down. It's just like, Hey Paul, we're going to stir up all of this stuff as you're, as you're working to make sense of this war. Let's go ahead and explore what happened to you when you were three and five and six, seven, eight. And it's just like, Oh damn. And I wasn't able to sleep. And I worked with uh, our doctors and I, I was on melatonin. I was maxed out on Ambien. And I was like, all right, let's combine both and see if that helps. And I still wasn't able to sleep. And uh, when I got home to Afghanistan, somebody, or from Afghanistan to back to North Carolina, somebody asked me, they're like, Paul, how is it being back? You must love it. Jen, I, I, it worked out. I got this beautiful beach house that was like my backyard was the intercoastal waterway two blocks from the Atlantic ocean. I had the dream beach house. I was kind of a bachelor. And I said to them, the silence is deafening. Every one of these pieces, because I had not been intentional with exploring to a point of resolution or at least being like by consensus, like I'm still not okay with that. I'm okay enough like for the group to move forward. Like that trauma, we're, we're going to go ahead and carry that with us. I'm still not okay with that yet. Um, I didn't explore those pieces. It was literally like, okay, that happened. Compress, add time and compression and pressure now from uh, being in Afghanistan. Well, that's like, a little pressure cooker bomb that went off and the catalyst was bourbon whiskey. And I wanted to sleep. That was the biggest piece. I wanted to be able to sleep. I was so tired. And so I started with a nightcap and then that turned into a shot. And then that turned into, Oh, well, what happens when you put some ice? Oh, it chills and enhances the flavors. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Just give me more. And very quickly, I went down a path of being drunk. And if I wasn't drinking and passing out, sometimes dumping my precious elixir all over my lap, if I wasn't drinking to pass out, I wasn't sleeping. And when I wasn't drinking to pass out, I was still having problems sleeping. Living in that and what I've learned since then is when you drink and you pass out like that, you're not resting at a minimum. Your body's metabolism is in like overdrive to metabolize all of the alcohol and all the sugar out of your bloodstream. So this rest that I was so desperately striving to achieve continued to elude me because that was the wrong direction. Alcohol wasn't that answer. Again, doing the thing that I saw best and that was a fog. That was an absolute fog of time 
uh, I had some friends. I wasn't sharing them the full extent of like everything that was going on. I was really in a place of, well, this happened to me. I'm going to figure it out. And that, that did not serve me. And I made some poor choices and, uh, I'm really grateful that I've had these opportunities to ask for forgiveness, you know, and, and not just in those post Afghanistan times, but I've asked for the forgiveness of my former wife. And this, this last trip from a week and a half ago, I sat down with her dad for a couple hours and asked for his forgiveness. Not because I'm divorced from his daughter. There was that piece. There was also what I can directly accept responsibility for. I have not been communicating with you. I have not been communicating with my family. I have not been caring and present in my children's lives. And you have helped create an environment to support my former wife, your daughter, and thank you. I was able to talk to her mom and have that similar conversation and her youngest brother and her sister and my kids and her and all of these people. It's like, okay, this is part of cleaning up that, that trash heap from playing kick the can. Uh, did we talk about that yet on the call? No. I, and oh. I, that was my next question. I love the yeah. pressure association. Because yeah. 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 We do it. We, we do create pressure cookers in our lives where all of a sudden the blender turns on and all oh, yeah. from everything comes crashing. Just it's so did you, what well, did you do uh, to heal yourself before you asked for forgiveness? And go yeah. ahead. Well, because you're saying like it's crashing and that's what our, that's what our society and everything like likes to say is like, you're hitting rock bottom. You're, you're really getting everything thrown at you. And I transformed that to, I have another opportunity to clean this up. Thank you, life. You are allowing me another opportunity because I didn't remember this. This is something I haven't thought of for 10, 20, 30 years. For some of your listeners, it might be longer. Thank you, life, for bringing this up because now I have an opportunity to choose how I want to show up with that situation from my past. I get to define. I have that awesome opportunity to define how did that bring me to here today because I like me today. Part of me today is that I sexually molested, physically abused, emotionally abused, like just goofy stuff and decisions by our senior leaders in Afghanistan. That brought me to where I am today. So that was part of that first step with healing. Everything that has happened in my past brought me to today to not only catapult me to success, it also, if I change my perspective, that catapult can like, well, I jump on it and just fall to the depths of the ocean. It becomes an anchor instead of something that's going to propel me forward. So I started seeing, and one of my close friends recognized that I was an antagonist. I would push and I'd probe and I'd find a sensitive spot and I'd mash the hell out of that button to get that emotional response. And I wasn't using it to serve me, to serve them, to advance anything. I was being an ass. And she says to me one day, you know, you have this ability to push people's buttons. Have you ever thought about doing it for something good? What? <laughs> And that started this little spark. Now I was still in this like fog of alcohol abuse. It, it, it rekindled, it like got through all of that crap and found that one little spark of humanity and started fanning it saying, you're not out yet. You can still bring this back. 
you can still do the right things. You can still make the right decisions. You can still advance your life. It was profound. And so when I started my healing journey, it was after I got out of the Marine Corps, this was the end of February of 2015. I didn't have a plan. Uh, and in the preparation of those final weeks in the Marine Corps, I was on vacation, drunk off my ass at home. Uh, Christmas of 2014, I, I was upset with how Christmas presents were going to get presented to my kids. So I drank and drank and drank and I, gosh, I've, I've roughly estimated how much I drank. It was way, way, way too much. And I laid in bed for the next two and a half days. I would crawl to the bathroom. I would continue to eject like any last bit of anything in my system for two and a half days. And when I woke up, I still hadn't learned my lesson because I still didn't stop drinking after that. Uh, but I lived somehow. And in that, in that immediate like after effect of that event, I started looking at, I want to get back to Montana to heal. Because part of what Montanans do and uh, this has kind of been popping up in the, in the news lately in different ways. Montanans live in a state that has natural disasters every year. As such, because it's so, the population is so spread out, just over a million people in the fourth largest state in our amazing country, you create this independent resilience and then you create these communities to have interdependent resilience to survive as such there there's a i see that as like the right mixture of like magic to have a high contribution to our country at a larger level so montana is the second or third each year in a per capita rate of veterans, of military service. So about one in nine Montanans is a veteran. And as I started looking at, I have some work to do. I want to heal. I want to regroup. I want to reset. I want to go back home to Montana. Uh, I, was, I was going to have a severance pay of about $130,000. And I was like, okay, that'll be a little nest egg. I'm not retiring. I can get started. Well, two weeks before I got out, they researched that policy a little bit further and my particular situation didn't apply. So all of the other programs for my separation that may have resulted in uh, a sustenance of a partial retirement or any of those other programs, the timeline was too late. I was getting out in two weeks. And at that point in my life, I was ready. I wanted out. So I went back home to Montana. I lived with my folks. I bought a laser engraver. I converted a shed into being a wood shop, a spray booth, and a little office. And I knew that I could make this work because by God, I was a Marine. I was a Marine officer and I'm going to have the resilience and the tenacity. And I didn't. I took a temporary job as I have this laser $30,000 machine in the garage to get some capital of putting stickers on boxes. Uh, there's a, a fishing company that's headquartered in Bozeman and all of their garments and everything else in this warehouse. I put the, the little barcode on the box. Six weeks earlier, I was part of 
high level classified meetings for how we were going to put teams in different countries around the world. And it was just such a welcome relief that me putting this sticker on this box has no effect on anybody's life. Nobody's life is in danger. And so that was really fun for about two days. <laughs> I can't believe you stayed that long. Well, and then I, I, I worked there, I think for two or three weeks and that was a challenge. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to explore where this takes me. You know, 19 year old supervisor that was basically assigned to be a babysitter that didn't have anybody but me. So it was just like this stovepipe of supervision. There was like the boss, there was the formalized assistant boss, and then there was the lead, and then there was the self-appointed assistant lead, and then this guy who'd been here longer than me, so he's in charge of me, and then I'm there, and I'm like, I don't need you hovering, dude. Like, I've done some pretty significant projects, and then I realized I put myself in that position. The system isn't going to adapt to me. I'm going to adapt to the system, or I find a different system. So that was beneficial. Reached a point where I'm just like, yep, I'm out. Ran out of money, started working construction. Oh, my God. God, I have so much respect for our men and women in the construction industry because damn, damn, that is hard work. And I was doing it at this place called the Yellowstone Club outside of Bozeman, Montana. Uh, uh, very, very, very expensive homes. It's at like 8,500 feet. So you can't even hardly breathe as you're building. And there's been these men and women up on that hill that have been building these amazing homes. It's really been beneficial for the economy. But damn, like me, Carpenter, no, that, that didn't work out. Um, let, me so I, let me jump in. Yeah, go ahead. Were yeah, you? Because yeah. we didn't do the kick the can thing yet, and I love the kick. Oh, the kick the can thing. Yeah. So, so was I, it still happening? Give, just go ahead. Jump into the Oh, jeez. So I have this image as I'm starting this personal development work, as I'm, like, looking at stuff that I'm talking with uh, – like a VA therapist and stuff like that. And I just had this like image of I'm like kicking the can and the can represents a little piece of trauma or an emotional blip or a thing that doesn't quite make sense. And I would just like drop my litter on the street of my life and just kick the can down the road. Now, if you've ever cleaned up after like a concert or a giant picnic in the park and like people have just trashed it, like at a certain point you can, use your foot to rake trash, but it quickly becomes uh, unsustainable. Your foot's not built to be a rake and kick trash. It's built to move you forward in your life. But all of these traumatic incidents in my life, ones that happened to me, ones that I did, things that I still didn't quite figure out, ended up like me hitting the wall. And I'm just looking up at this giant trash heap because for, 30 plus years, I hadn't picked up the trash and picked up the trash as you explore and resolve that trauma. And, and for any of your listeners that can identify with this, go find that professional at a minimum. If you're, if your trash heap is overwhelming, you find that friend and just say, Hey, I'm in overwhelm right now. I can use some support and help your friend help you explain how you want that support because people love you. People don't know, and there's this mystique around things like suicide, and that was part of my wall that I hit, was really exploring, am I doing any good on the earth? Then I'm about to remove myself, remove the problem. So and if you get that? that call, like that was, gosh, that's happened to several times. Okay, um, so suicide that is was, an option on the table. Several it times. has, it has. 
And, you know, with recent reports of how people judge the deceased for what they did and how they did it, judgment isn't going to heal our world. Judgment isn't going to advance the human race, the world society. And, and the sooner that we can just say, wow, I don't agree with what happened, but damn, that was somebody's son. That was somebody's daughter, sister, mother. The sooner we can start letting go of that judgment, we can show some love and compassion towards each other and those families and those children that are caught up in that quagmire after that, we can really start advancing. So there's that, <laughs> that little soapbox there. So I started getting to work. I started getting to work and the VA has some, some resources. And I was really fortunate because in Bozeman, Montana is Senator John Tester's office and his team has an office that I started working with and giving direct feedback to Senator Tester. And the reason why I'm giving him a shout out is because he's on these veterans committees and I really was aligned to his message. I don't know anything about his politics. I started looking at his actions because that's something that the Marine Corps taught me is you can have a lot of talk, which I did. What is your action? How is your action going to be congruent with what your message is? And Senator Tester and his old team, I really hope they listen to your podcast because they crushed it. They were really, really supportive. They incorporated my cogent feedback and I got involved in the VA system because that is the system. And I didn't have the financial abundance. I didn't have the plan to be able to pay for healthcare on my own. Those were the resources available to me. So unlike my persuasion and communication techniques in the Marine Corps, after the Marine Corps, I started looking at how can I have fun with this? How can I have a game? Because if I have fun and they have fun, I'm going to get better faster in this system. Not only through the physical treatment and the mental treatment, but just my own like way I show up. That's going to accelerate my healing journey. So the, the majority of my healing was uh, mental therapy. I also believe that trauma can be stored in the body. So I paid for a massage therapist. Uh, I also received physical therapy as part of uh, the injuries that I sustained while in the military. Um, and then I also had a chiropractor. And I was like learning about physiology and anatomy as I'm hearing all of these terms. So that way I can pass it on to the other provider, like signing consent forms, like please call my other doctor to make sure I'm not misrepresenting anything you say, because I'm not a doctor. And like created this team of people that could help me heal. And I'm a year and a half into that journey. It's really painful. Uh, and it's working. Part of that journey was being paired with Izzy the dog, my service dog. And uh, the gal that I was dating at that time, now my girlfriend, Valerie, we had gone to the pound a few days ahead of her departure from Bozeman. She was coming down to Phoenix to go to nursing school. And uh, I was really in my own way to see what an amazing relationship I had with her that summer. And I was really scared. I really didn't want to get hurt again. Like I had hurt myself in that relationship with my former wife. Um, yet still here she is like showing this bold, fearless support. We're at the pound and we find out that Bozeman, Montana has a program to adopt a dog for service vets with PTSD. 
at low and no cost. So my cost to adopt Izzy, vaccinated, spayed, like all of her everything, I paid seven bucks for her name tag. And I think her pet registration, like something like that. And then they had a program within the community to where there was a, a, a vendor of animal nutrition products. And I received a bag of food a month for Izzy. Like this huge immediate support uh, for how she can contribute to my life. And that I think was the final piece that as I was going out in society and as anxiety happened and as these panic attacks happened and with my hypervigilance that I, that I was seeing everybody emotionally still as like that threat intellectually I'd committed to, they're not a threat emotionally. It was still a threat. I used the training that Izzy and I received from the pound and the, and the amazing team associated with the pound um, for her to have a service that's called blocking. And what she'll do is literally just be at my back facing the opposite direction. So that way I can be fully present in a conversation, making and establishing, maintaining eye contact with that other person. Because now I have that emotional piece, like Izzy's got it. Like she's watching for me. And that's just been this, I mean, it's not that I've gone from JV to varsity on this now in life. I'm showing up in a whole nother league. Like I was on a farm team and now I'm in the pros. So with uh, Izzy and with everything you've done, when did the drink, the drinking eventually stopped? And I know that from our mm -hmm. conversations. And yeah. You bring her everywhere. So was it when the drinking stopped that the anxiety, when did the anxiety present itself as a result of the trauma? It, it's still there. And the hypervigilance it, came from the military. Um, you know, I think a large degree, the hypervigilance, I learned how to express it really well in the military. In that year of, of being with my general, being his driver, and some of the security schools I went through, and being an MP, police have a state of hypervigilance to survive. That's a conversation that in this popular media and Facebook headlines, we're ignoring, is that police officers don't get killed on the bank robbery. They get killed on the, the regular traffic stop when they let their guard down because maybe they were tired. Maybe they wanted to have that belief in humanity that they were safe and they get shot. And that's a context that's missing within our media. As we, as we see these officers making a decision that resulted in the end of life. And I, I really am intentional with how I phrase that because I'm not judging if the police officer made the wrong decision or not. That was one thing that I learned. Like nobody saw a perspective for me unless they were in my shoes. Um, there was one day to just amplify this as an MP in Okinawa, Okinawa is a society that does not grant the second amendment. Like we have, it does not allow its society to arm itself as such. They have a fascination with airsoft pistols, or at least they did in, uh, late 2004 when I was on the night shift and on the front gate of our Marine base. And we had stopped the vehicle. This is post 9-11, so security measures were a lot different pre-9-11 uh, than everything that we've experienced after that. And I'm on the front gate. I'm talking with this person. And out pops this little kid. But I don't see really the kid. 
I see this air, what, what became an airsoft pistol, but it was a complete duplicate of a Beretta nine millimeter pistol. And my training kicks in and I go to draw my weapon. My partner goes around him and, and grabs the kid and grabs the gun. The mom's freaking out. The kid's freaking out. I'm like, wow, I'm going to put my gun back away and, and snap that back up. I almost shot a kid. Okay, let's get this situation resolved. We got cars lining up on the gate. Hey, pull over, come into the guard shack. Let's figure this out. We laid it down. It looked the same. That's a context that we're missing in American society is what we are asking these law enforcement professionals to do every day. They don't get killed on the felony traffic stop. They get killed on a, you have a blinker out. And to further public safety, I'm going to let you know that maybe in a verbal warning, maybe in a written warning, maybe in a ticket, because I have discretion to keep our society safe. So little, little divergence there. Um, the hypervigilance though, uh, that's where Izzy, Izzy helped me out. And part of that hypervigilance I think was initiated as a child in an abusive household. Is it safe around dad today or not? What are the environmental clues that I can like solicit immediately to stay safer, to immediately change my behavior, or maybe my brother did something and I anticipate that he's going to get in trouble for that, which means a beating. So what can I say to plausibly bring the story onto me? Because being a little bit older and a little bit stronger, I believed in that, that childhood lens that I could absorb that trauma better. So that was that hypervigilance. Was it exclusively the military? Uh, it definitely amplified it and gave me like solid techniques how to express it. It existed ahead of that. Um, as such, the anxiety, is that something that's ever going to leave? I think so. There was a, there was a time that I, I described PTSD as being as much a part of me as my blue eyes. And when I chose to saw the beauty in my blue eyes, I chose to look for the beauty of what is PTS teaching me. So does the anxiety still happen? Yes. Is it anywhere near where it used to be? Not usually. And there's a variety of techniques that I continue to, to utilize that I, I, I have like my three best self words, loving, authentic, and bold. And if I'm in a situation where I feel that spike of, of that hypervigilance. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're loving, you're authentic, you're bold. I'm loving, I'm authentic, I'm bold. And that helps bring me back. Um, tactile stimulation. If anybody's listening to this podcast and they have this, you know, just doing a little drill where you take your, your thumb and you touch your fingertip of your index finger, your middle finger, your ring finger, your uh, pinky finger. And it's like almost like a, I think I learned it from a field sobriety test as an MP where you go one, two, three, four, four, three, two, one. And I practice it when I'm not in anxiety. And I feel how simple it is. And I commit to when the anxiety happens, that is still a simple task. I have something that I have gotten in my own way. I'm going to focus on that task and make that simple. And then reboot and rebuild from there so I can get back and engage in society like I choose to. Not through some like chemical dump in my brain. I'm no longer going to react. I'm going to intentionally choose my response. You know, one, two, three, four, four, three, two, one. And, and bring myself back online. So what about, was suicide something that you actively thought out the process of? Where were you at in that spectrum? Oh yeah, oh yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember as a little kid having a conversation with God in the backyard and I looked straight up at the sun because I, I, I figured that was God. Don't recommend that for any of your viewers. <laughs> that, that hurt for a little while. But I had this conversation with God in the backyard of why me? I was very upset. I was very much in this victim mentality. And I remember sobbing in the backyard uh, uh, and asking that like I get hit riding my bike or just something swift. I didn't really want to like be in pain. And I didn't want my parents to be in pain. I just wanted to be dead. And that was like my first recollection of really contemplating the concept of suicide, like take me off this earth. Uh, I don't want to be here anymore. When my kids left uh, and my drinking really, really spiked, and this would have been uh, January, February of 2010, um, I remember having that bottle of bourbon whiskey. I was just like, let's just save the glass. We're going to drink straight from the bottle, right? Let's go find that efficient solution. And I'd take a swig, and then I'd put my 45 caliber pistol in my mouth, and I'd be like, well, how does this taste? And I literally went through drink by drink, which it's not the healthiest way to examine that. But I looked at it, not right now. I remember thinking about that. It's like, nope, I still don't want to taste this. Uh, I'll have a taste of the whiskey and numb the pain instead of end the pain. Um, so that was, that was the first real exploration where things, you know, the gun's off safe, the hammer's not back, but there's a bullet in the chamber. So I squeeze the trigger and I'm dead. That was the first time that it had come that close. Uh, uh, since then, you know, there's been different times where I'm just like, yep, can't handle this. Um, most efficient way is slice my wrist and I'm going to bleed out. And, you know, and I, I looked at that and I'm just like, no, that's not it. And at one of these times of acute stress and not generating options, you know, and I think that's what people don't understand is that having been in that place where I've had a 45 caliber pistol in my mouth, it's not that I was a coward. It's that I lost the ability to, to generate options in my life. And I backed myself into a corner where there were no other options. And somehow in, in one of these times, I just, I had this thought zip through my mind. When you find yourself one breath away from complete overwhelm when you're that close have you been there jim you know what i'm talking about you're just like and you're kind of holding your breath because you're just like damn i am like completely overwhelmed but you're not yet you're like holding your breath right there right there in that moment i chose to be intentional and this is where the intellect like created a space for my emotion to step forward and inhabit and i intellectually said i am one breath away from overwhelm be intentional with my breath and either I hold my breath, which I know through physiology and neuroscience, just like my basic understanding of the, the human body. If I hold my breath, I will spiral downward. And I am guaranteed overwhelm, but I'm not there yet. So be intentional. Hold my breath and plummet into overwhelm. And all of the work that I've done, I will have to fight and crawl to get back up to where I am to continue to move my life forward. Or... Take the breath. And for your listeners that are listening right now to this podcast, if you are in that situation, this is what taking a breath sounds like. (sighs) 
And even if you're not in that situation, reward yourself right now. Take that breath with intention because our body takes care of that at the unconscious level. When we bring our intention to it, especially in those moments where we might be that one breath away from overwhelm and we're real intentional, we take that breath, then where might we be? We might be still one breath away from overwhelm, yet my intellect tells me no. Because I took that breath that was another few seconds, maybe even to, into a minute, that my body can metabolize those chemicals that my brain dumped into my system. This panic that I'm feeling is real and my brain is looking for any reason to justify it. You know what? Suspend that for a moment with a breath. Eventually, when I take enough breaths with that intention, and again, not just this, <laughs> no, really, really like let your neighbor hear it. Let the neighbor next door hear this breath because you're bringing that much attention to set your intention behind that breath. I'm gonna explore what happens with my proximity to being overwhelmed by taking this next breath. And that's how I choose to, to operate today. When I have those feelings of anxiety that I've seen lead to this path of, of suicidal thoughts and plans, then I'm intentional. Hold my breath, which I still haven't chosen to do yet. But I present that as a choice every single time because I've been in the position where I'd have no choice. I felt like I had no choice. So I always present this, self to, this to myself as a choice. Take the breath or hold the breath. And set your intention on like behind that action. Set or hold my breath so that I may plummet down or take the breath so that I can at least take another breath. Wow. So you are in service. You, you decided to heed the advice and instead of pushing the buttons in a way that brings negativity, you mm -hmm. do it with, with positivity and in service through go win today. So tell me a little bit about just touch on the coaching business and what you've done with all of this in your past to move it forward in a positive manner. And we'll end on that. Yeah, absolutely. So part of this personal development journey is uh, as a certified high performance coach with Brenda Burchard. And what's fun is how the world gifts you when you're out of your own way to receive it. Brennan Burchard lived two doors down from me in college. And Brennan Burchard is now like Oprah Winfrey's coach for her and her executive team and Ariana Huffington's coach and like some of these greats across multiple industries. Usher is one of his clients. And here it is like in December of 2015, I'm feeling, you know, like I'm, I'm in that brink again. Like, should I stay or should I go now? Thinking about suicide, you know, and making light of it through that that song, you know, that, that was like in my mind. And you know those annoying little Facebook ads that pop up? Well, one of them was my buddy Brendan Bouchard. And he had just rolled out this course with Oprah Winfrey. And so I completely immersed myself in this work and now have the awesome opportunity to share that work as a certified high performance coach. And that makes up a component of my business. As a certified high performance coach, there are indicators of success with the world's highest performing achievers. And Brendan has done a lot of work and I'm certified in some of that work to, to explore. Here's these overlapping areas 
with the world's highest performing achievers. Now that we've recognized them, we can assign arbitrary assessment criteria and advance our lives. And Brennan has a book coming out in like a couple of weeks, September 17th, I think, uh, High Performance Habits. He's going to be on the cover of Success Magazine. And if any of your listeners want to check out his material, please do so. Uh, I use that as a component of my coaching business. I just had my uh, first seminar in the Scottsdale area two days ago. That's why I'm on vacation. I'm on a tank top. I haven't shaved. And I'm just like, well, I think she said this is going to be audio only. But either yeah, way, yeah, yeah. I'm, in, <laughs> I'm in scrub mode because my team and I are really celebrating like this awesome first seminar in the Scottsdale area. And uh, I taught a course called Beyond My Words. And similar to what I've shared with you, I listen really acutely to how we are using language. And there's some really fun science out of the, the laboratories of Stanford and MIT that have proven how language controls your thoughts. So here this is, like, I, I found this research with my team as I'm preparing for this seminar, and I'm looking at, like, my own journey, how I would, like, intellectually create the space and then emotionally inhabit it when I was ready, when I saw that it was safe. And here it is, like, you can intellectually, intentionally change your language, and that will change how you think at a fundamental level. When you do that, you can develop more of a, of a bias for action, of a proactiveness in your lifestyle, of advancing the needle of your life forward. And then with what the Marine Corps taught me of how to define what is our strategic objective and what are our tactics, we talk through that, but not in a way that we're going to go invade Baghdad or like land a missile in Helmand province. We're talking about ways that you can very, very rapidly move that needle of your life forward. So all of these experiences I draw on, including those ones that were traumatic, I look for those opportunities where I can serve because I'm not, it's not that I'm a victim of the trauma or even a survivor of the trauma. I'm in a place where I now, I call myself a thriver. And so all of those pieces come together and I have a unique way that I can serve my clients because of the use of language, because of the use of military planning to advance an operation. Well, you can use that same framework to advance your own life very, very efficiently, very rapidly. So in a nutshell, that's what I do. Really, it, it goes back to the slogan of what I have with my company. I help you go out and win your dreams today because that's on offer every moment of our lives. So let's start right now. Yay. So Paul, you can be found at gowin.today. Yeah, all one word. It's really fun because there's no .com, .biz or anything else. You literally type in gowin.today. Or you can check me out on Facebook. Same thing. Just do the little at symbol, gowin.today. On my website, you can uh, submit your name and your email address and then stay up to date on the latest content that I'm working on with my team as well as receive advanced notice on upcoming seminars and workshops that I'll be holding, uh, not only in the Phoenix area, but my team's looking for other opportunities for me to speak and work with people around the country. And we've uh, a, a little teaser for some of your listeners. We are looking at some opportunities even in Europe and, and some other areas of the world to take uh, this message and, and, uh, and deliver it to people in the world. I so appreciate your time today and your openness. 
regardless of having that be part of where where your journey has taken you i still really appreciate your vulnerability in talking with us today you're so welcome i really hope that if any of this lands with any of your listeners like the biggest takeaways respect yourself what i recognized was i had all of these tools that i was wanting to serve and help other people and i was neglecting myself so it's not selfish to work on centering yourself. So do that. And then when you receive that call of assistance from another person, if you don't know how you can boldly serve and love them, ask. And it sounds like this, how may I support you in that? And if that can help out your listeners, then holy smokes, Jen, like Zoom high five, right? (laughs) We can rock it out, you know? Because that's how we change the dialogue of the discussion that the world's having right now. Because there are beautiful, loving people out there. And if you look and you're out of your own way, you're going to see it. And that's how we, we really get to heal our human race and move forward to that next level. Agreed. And perfect way to end. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome Input with Attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.